0: Well, Christmas is drawing near, and I'm sure all of you are making all of your preparations. Uh, I'm curious this morning how many of you have actually already purchased your gifts and wrapped them? Anybody? Wow. We are not jealous. We love all people here. Uh, even those who might make us feel a little bit judged. Um, uh, Others of us probably are still making those last-minute purchases. Uh, Some of us, maybe me, might be up till midnight on the night before Christmas wrapping that last gift. Uh, Have any of you gotten to that place, that last-minute wrapping job, where you've got some kind of gift that is so large that you don't exactly know how to wrap it? Anybody ever been there? Like a basketball goal, Uh, and it just so happens you planned on doing that last, and so... Uh, as you're trying to wrap it, you realize, uh, oh, I'm out of paper, and I can't wrap this anymore. And so then you start to get creative. And you remember, people don't re- read newspapers anymore, so you're like, how oh, am I going to do this? And finally, you end up just sticking a little bow on top of this massive present, right? And you hand it to them, and you're like, thanks, Dad. Um, I know what it is. It's a basketball goal. See the pictures on the outside? Um, that's, I think, what we can end up like. Maybe that's not you. I do that all the time. But I think there's actually something we should be more worried about wrapping uh, during the Christmas season. That is wrapping our minds around the reality of the incarnation. You see how I did that, that Jesus juke? Um, But I mean that seriously. Have you ever thought about the idea... Uh, that we use of wrapping our mind around something. And what an interesting way that is to think about what it is that we're trying to do. Uh, usually what we say is, is we're trying to wrap our mind around some great idea that we find it really difficult for us to like stretch our minds around. as though like we would open it up and like wrap it around this idea? Well, what other idea would be more difficult for us to wrap our minds around than the very incomprehensible God coming down and taking on flesh in the person of Jesus. You know, I think sometimes we don't really give uh, other religions and philosophers who claim they do not believe in God or that God can't be known the kind of credit that we ought to in the sense that they at least recognize this one reality. And that is that God is vast beyond our ability to comprehend. In fact, as we think about God, uh, there are, are some who have even given a kind of description about the nature of how hard it would be for any of us to actually speak about who God is. Uh, uh, there's this illustration that you've probably heard before of ants on the back or on the body of an elephant, and they're spread across this elephant, and each of them are asked to give a description of what an elephant is like. Well, you'd think being that close they would know, but you've got one ant that's on a hair, and they're like, well, he's kind of long and sort of hard. Another's on a toenail. He's like kind of flat and smooth. And, and so all of these descriptions are coming in different and various, even though they're all looking at the same elephant. And they say, you know, this is kind of like what it's like for the different religions of the world. They all have some truth to add to the conversation from their unique perspective. And that's the way they would describe the nature of what it is for a finite human trying to engage with an infinite God. But I love what my friend Greg Gilbert says here. He says, that's a good illustration, but they miss one point, an important point, an important detail. What do you do if that elephant actually decided to speak back to those ants and start describing himself to those ants as far as who he is and what he is like so that he was actually able to speak to them in terms that they understood so that all of them would hear together in unison what this great being was? And that is exactly the kind of image that we get in the Bible. This great incomprehensible God who is beyond our ability to grasp has actually stooped down. He has condescended in such a way that he has spoken to us that we might know him. That is amazing. Well, that is just the introduction. This morning, we have been thinking about the the great triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our Trinitarian Christmas series and how each of these persons has had a role in the way that we understand the meaning of the incarnation. Now last week we looked at God the Father's role and the fact that it was his great love for a sinful world destined for perishing that propelled him to send his son to save us. Well this week we're looking at God the Son. We're actually flipping back from John 3 to John 1, where we are going to consider the Son who literally stoops down to our level by taking on flesh to tell us what God is truly like. Now, there are two historical realities that I believe help explain John's gospel that are important for this morning. And I want you to to remember both of these. The first is this. I believe Andreas Kostenberger argues convincingly that John actually wrote this gospel after the temple fell in 70 AD. The temple was the place where Israelites came and met with God, and most centrally in the Holy of Holies, that place that was separated by a veil from the rest of the temple. It was there that the glory of God was said to dwell most fully in all of creation. Second reality, I think, that shapes. This gospel is that John is writing into a culture that is heavily influenced by Greeks. Now, in in this culture, they were teaching teachings that centered on an eternal logos, or word. A kind of rationality that served as, as the seeds for everything that they saw in real time. There was an ideal world that affected the real world. In other words, they looked around and they saw the beauty of all of creation And they noticed the universality of things like reason. And they said that all people also seem to have a kind of morality in this observable universe. And there must be, they reasoned, something that caused all of these things that seemed to make sense. And so many held this word or logos to be a kind of impersonal force that would be Impossible for humanity, really, humanity to really trace down as finite beings. It seemed as though they couldn't really get to the, the end of what this reason was because the real world was set apart from that ideal world that shaped it. Now enter in the apostle John, the disciple that Jesus loved. That disciple that was on the inner circle of the disciples who had a front row seat to some of the significant miracles of Jesus like the transfiguration and the empty tomb. And this disciple, the only disciple that we believe was not murdered, he he is the one who has come to tell us about the nature of who Jesus, the Son of God, is. He tells us in John 20, 31, that his purpose of writing this gospel is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have eternal life in his name. But how does he get there? How does he get to the message of the Son that we have to believe in? Well you'll remember that Mark launches his gospel and he tells us about the amazing deeds of Jesus. But when we come to John's gospel, he launches it considering the essence of the unique son of God who existed from eternity's past, identifying him as that eternal word of God. And he writes in John 1, 1 to 3 about this word. He says, in the beginning was the word or the logos and the word was with God and catch this, the word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. And don't miss this. John says that that unknowable word is only knowable because God has spoken to his creatures about what he is like. The invisible, incomprehensible, everywhere present, all-powerful force has stooped to tell his creatures about who he is and what he is like. In fact, in the beginning, tells us that the beginning of God's revelation of himself to us begins with the very first words of Genesis 1. That's where John says the story begins. It's the word of God in the Old Testament. And in the beginning, there, God created all things through his word. And here we find that that word that spoke everything into existence is not just a word, but it is the word, it is a person, the second person of the Trinity who became Jesus. See, that's a big vision of the Son, isn't it? It's not a, a little Jesus that John begins with. Now, our big idea this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. You can write this down. The eternal Son of God became human so that we might know His glory. The eternal Son of God became human so that we might know God's glory, or His glory. Now first, we are going to see that Jesus has shown us the fullness of God's glory. But before we go there, would you pray with me? Let's ask God's help. Father, this morning as we come before you, we are opening your word to gaze upon the truth of who you are. And Father, it is a glorious thing that you have spoken to us. And so we pray this morning as we come before you that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see the glorious things that are spoken of you. Lord, use your word this morning to open our eyes. For those who are unregenerate, who have not been born again, Lord, we ask that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, for those of us who know the Son, who who have heard his voice, Who believe on him. Father, we pray that you would speak words of encouragement to us, that you would transform and shape us, that we might look more like Christ, who is the most human human that has ever lived. And it is the name of that great Son that we do pray. Amen. Well, there's the first thing that we see here this morning, and that's this that Jesus has shown us the fullness of God's glory. And we find that in verses 14 to 15. Now, notice here in in verse 14, he's gonna come back to that word word, or logos, from verse 1, and here's what he says in verses 14 to 15. He says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Let that just set in for a second. John tells us that in eternity's past, long before the Virgin Mary became pregnant, and and even long before Adam, that first man, was a twinkle in his father's eye, was the Word. As F.F. Bruce said, when the Word became flesh, God became man now as you you look through each description about this word here they are pregnant with meaning notice the flesh here contrary to the greeks god's word is not an impersonal force but the very personal and powerful self-expression of the invisible god revealing himself stooping and revealing himself to his creatures And don't miss this. The incarnation means that our incomprehensible God that we cannot wrap our minds around, God the Son, who is perfect wisdom, justice, love, mercy, and good, not goodness, but good itself, to such a degree that we can't wrap our minds around it, He came from God the Father and wrapped Himself in human flesh so that we might know Him. Mary swaddled and burped the baby in whom the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Even the language here tips us off to the awe-inspiring reality that our God has been progressively revealing himself more and more since the beginning of time. Because notice also that that word that became flesh dwelt among us. Now that word for dwell actually comes from a word in the Old Testament that means to, to pitch a tent or to tabernacle. He tabernacled amongst us. One of God's perfections is his omnipresence. In other words, in his deity, part of who God is, is that he is everywhere at all times. Now just try to wrap your mind around that. But God dwelt in a unique, covenantal kind of way with Israel in time and space he committed himself to them he gave his presence to them in such a way that he would be most fully experienced in the most holy place of the tabernacle and later the temple but the tabernacle in the day of Moses now this was interesting other religions had temples where their gods would be worshipped they had most holy places And in their most holy places, they would put up an image of the God, the deity that they were going to worship. But when you came into the the place, the temple, the tabernacle, where God was dwelling with his people, and you were one of those special priests who once a year were able to step behind that veil that separated you from the most holy place, where there should have been an image to God, they would come in and they would see absolutely nothing but a throne where God's footstool was said to be. There was no image of this God. And so... Oftentimes, Jews were called atheists because they did not have an image for their God like other religions did. See, God dwelt here in a unique covenantal way with his people. And he did not give them an image to describe him or that they might contain him in. See, pagans had localized gods whose images were in their temples, but behind that veil, the most holy place, there was no image because God is spirit and cannot be contained in a house. In fact, even the hem of his garment filled the temple in Isaiah 6 as Isaiah was looking in. But also notice here that We find more. The the second commandment says that we are not to have images of the invisible God. And yet here John says that to see Jesus is to see God's glory. In other words, looking upon Jesus is to see God. Well, that tells us something about who Jesus is. You'll remember that it's actually humanity that was created in the image of God and after his likeness. And here Jesus comes and he says that this is what humanity was to look like. It was to look like the glory of God. See, God created us in his image and likeness, but Jesus here uniquely images his Father and is as such in both the fullness of God and the fullness of humanity. He is the most human human to ever live. And God also met with Moses in a tent. You'll remember that in the tent of meeting and When he would, God's glory cloud, the cloud of his presence would rest over it when God would meet with Moses. And you know what that glory cloud had? It was the Shekinah glory of God, the glory of the presence of God. Now, here's what's interesting. That word for Shekinah glory, it actually comes from the same root word for to pitch a tent or tabernacle or dwell. That glory was reflective of the presence of God with his people, God drawing near to his people. See, that glory was nothing short of the visible manifestation of God drawing near to them. So, if Moses saw God's glory in that tent, what we find here in John 1 is that we've seen God's greater Shekinah glory in the infleshing of his only, or better yet, one-of-a-kind Son who has come from the Father. And if the eternal Son has been with the Father since before the foundations of the world were laid, John 17, He has a unique knowledge of God that is categorically different and greater than anyone sent from God before or that will come after. Of course, here I believe John is saying that he and the countless other eyewitnesses who saw Jesus in his earthly ministry had laid eyes on the risen Savior and have literally seen God's glory in God's Son. What an image! Can you imagine laying eyes on the eternal Son of God taken on flesh? But notice how he describes the glory they've seen. Did you see that? He he speaks about the nature of that glory. He said it's full of what? Full of grace and truth. You might be wondering, what, what does it mean that the glory is full of grace and truth? What is he telling us about this glory? Well, I think here again, we have an Old Testament reference. I think he's pointing us back to Exodus 33. You remember there that Moses has received a vision from God. He has received a word from God in the Ten Commandments on those stone tablets in Exodus 34. And then in Exodus 34, 5 to 7, we are told the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord. So he's given the name of the Lord. And then verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. And here he's going to tell him about what he's like, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and I want you just to underline this, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. See, the two main Hebrew words here in in Exodus 34, verse 6, are chesed or covenantal love, that word for steadfast love that he is abounding in. And the other that he uses here is, is, is met or, or faithfulness, which I think could be translated truth. And so I think here we see the, the words for grace and truth that describe the Lord that John is picking up and bringing here. So, so hear me, the, the Lord passed before Moses. Revealing his glory and heralding his name as being full of grace and truth. John says, they saw that same glory and flesh in the person of Jesus, full of grace and truth. So as you travel through the rest of John's gospel, uh, we will find that this glory is veiled in human flesh. Not everybody who sees Jesus or even sees his miracles actually recognize that this is the God-man. And yet it is truly fully God that is everywhere before them. See, Jesus is the greater, the one greater than John the Baptist in verse 15. He's greater actually than all the prophets that preceded him, because he is the eternal Son of God and fully God. Sermon Bavink says, He who remained what he was also became what he was not. He took on human flesh. Now, if you grew up around Christians like like I do, and I did. You know, you find, I think, sometimes when you come to Christmas, it's really easy to lose a sense of wonder about God. It's almost like you can become domesticated to the reality that the eternal God took on flesh and the person of Jesus. I mean, we should never lose that sense of awe and wonder of the reality that baby Jesus in a manger is fully God dwelling among us. And that fullness of God was pleased to dwell not only in him, but amongst us as sinners. See, the deity took on the lowliness of humanity as an act of unparalleled love that he might rescue us through his life, his death, and his resurrection, as well as that ascension where he now is back in the bosom of the Father again. See, we all are born with a sense of God. I believe that's the nature of humanity. I think that's what Romans 1 is getting at when it says that all of humanity is guilty because they have looked and seen the invisible attributes of God on display in all of creation, and yet they have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness because what is to be seen of Him has been clearly made manifest in the things that were created. The miracle that is all around us. We are broken in our ability to perceive what it points to, and what it says to us about the nature of who created it. See, so many people look and see and know there must be some kind of God, but don't know what that God is, or even if we could obtain knowledge about so great a being. But this miracle of the incarnation is critical for us. It is critical for the cross. If Jesus was not fully man, he could not die in our place on the cross as a substitute And if he was not fully God, he could not be perfect and bear the just wrath that we deserved. Catch this. The theology of the incarnation, I think that it ought to fill us with wonder to the degree that if we were to duct tape our collective minds together and spend the rest of eternity trying to squeeze them around our incomprehensible God, I believe we would probably be left more humbled than when we began at just how great our God is. And yet so often we try to reduce God to something small that we can fit into a lunchbox. God is just love, and not just love, the love that I like. Not thinking about the love of God on display and all of its beautiful, glorious mercy and justice throughout the pages of Scripture. God didn't just say, I am love. He gave us a book about what real love looks like in light of the whole God. But this is theology that has legs too. Maybe you're like, I don't like to think much and it hurts my head to think about stuff like that. But friend, I want you to know that thinking about stuff like that, it has legs that walk through life and help you whenever you find yourself in dark places. And Jesus is truly Emmanuel. That Isaiah 9 promised that there's coming a time when God would be with us. And that... That reality that God stooped to come and to enter into our world with us ought to bring us unparalleled encouragement as our souls are beleaguered by a world that is broken all around us. Have you seen the brokenness of the world? Have you seen the pain and the misery? Maybe it's not in your life and you're thinking, I just hope I don't have to get stuck like everybody else that's suffering this Christmas. My guess is most of us are thinking like, we've got our issues too. The world clearly isn't working the way it ought even though it declares the majesty of God and there's not an Adam that doesn't declare his glory in all the universe and yet at the same time, we are left thinking something's not working right. And Christmas, it can remind you, though it should be a hopeful season of all that's been lost. Can't tell you how many people get depressed during the Christmas season. Even good memories of the past Can haunt you with the fear that they'll never return again. But the incarnation. The incarnation ought to mean that we can lament better than the psalmists do, even at Christmas. Do you know what I'm talking about? Lament. I, I often tell other Christians that I believe that one of the reasons that we don't live well is we haven't learned to lament well. See, lamenting, if you look at the Psalms, you know what the psalmist tells us that the believers of the Old Testament sang about most? Sadness, not understanding the brokenness of this world, trying to sing their souls back to hope in God out of the brokenness that is all around them. Seventy percent of the Psalms are actually laments. How many of the songs that you sing in your car are laments when you're singing about God? See, this is a people that understood the brokenness of this world. Why do evil people seem to win? If a good God is sovereign, that's how they pray. Why does God let his people face sickness and death and persecution if he loves them? That's the way that the psalmists pray. Will God forgive me of my sins or take a spirit from me because I'm such a sinner still? That's what he's singing about, the psalmist. See, the psalmists are crying out to their incomprehensible God because they don't understand their experiences but so often it's God's revealed character in the Psalms the fact that they are not left in the brokenness of this world without an explanation they turn themselves towards hope in God by listening to the words that God has spoken to them and it's those words that direct the meditations of their hearts from their brokenness See, it's in those moments where they feel like the world doesn't make sense and they can't begin to believe that they can understand what God's doing that they cry out to this God looking to His Word and trusting Him. Well, think about this. We have something better. If the incomprehensible God has taken on Human flesh and entered into our sufferings with us, dwelt amongst us, how much greater cause do we have in those moments to hope in God? See, Jesus doesn't merely remind us that God is steadfast in his love to his people, he punctuates it with an endless stream of little exclamation marks, right? Hope in God in the Old Testament, the Messiah is coming. Hope in God in the New Testament, he has come, you have seen him, you have seen his glory, and he's coming back. We might not understand how to make sense of the lamentable brokenness of this world, but we know Jesus, the God-man, who came to rescue us from sin and tell us what God is like. He entered into our sufferings with us, and he is full of grace and truth. But not only that, he is fuller in his glory than the glory that Moses saw. That's what verses 16 to 17 say. We see greater glory than Moses. See, Jesus is greater than Moses. In verse 14, we are told that the glory of the Son was full of of grace and truth. But here in verse 16, he says this, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What does it mean that we have received grace upon grace? Now, that, that's been taken a lot of different ways. A lot of different commentators have described and defined that in different ways. In fact, even the way that it's written in our Bibles says something about the way that it's being taken. But what does it mean, grace upon grace? Well, the most popular way to take this, and I think the way that it's often translated in our English Bibles, is that we receive more and more grace each moment, each day in Christ. Now, I think the power of that argument is that it's true. We do receive more and more grace from God each moment and day, etc. From the fullness of the glories of Christ, we have received more and more grace and will forevermore. Now, the problem, though, with this translation is the problem is that the Greek preposition that's used there for upon that you see is actually not the normal word for upon. See, the more natural reading here would actually be grace instead of grace. But what would that mean? Well, Don Carson, as often, is helpful here And he shows the strong connection that's being made between verse 16 and 17. In other words, 17 is kind of explaining what 16 means. And notice what verse 17 says. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now because 17 explains verse 16, the grace and truth we have received through Christ has replaced the grace of the law that came through Moses. Do you see it? We had grace and truth through Jesus. Uh, but here we, we see that that is replacing the grace of the law that came through Moses. Verse 17. Now I know that when you hear that, some might have trouble with it. Because they, they like to think of their Bibles as kind of being like Old Testament is the law. New Testament is grace. And we shouldn't have any grace in the Old Testament. Even though grace is everywhere. But we especially don't think of the law as Grace, But I think that's a flat reading of the law and it misses the point that John communicates here. See, this is a, a real sense in which the law images the very character of the invisible God. God's people and God's place were to keep God's law is a display of the glory of God to the nations. So when the incomprehensible God stoops to communicate himself to humans in ways that we can understand. It is an act of grace. It really is special revelation in the special sense. That's why David says the law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. How many of you have ever looked at the law and said, man, it's perfect, I need to read more of it so that I can feel revived today? Well, you should. David says so, it revives the soul. He goes on to speak of it and he says, it's sweeter than honey. How many of you said, man, I, boy, if I could just have something sweet today, you know what I'm talking about? Like some of that Harry and David's like popcorn crunch. Like boy, it would be a good day. How many of you have that same kind of sense about the word of God? Man, I just need some of God's word today because it is sweet and I can't live without it. Or you value it like David did where he says it's, it's more precious than gold. Not just gold, but like really precious Valuable pure gold, it's, it's more valuable than that to me. Is that the way you see the law of God? That's the way that David saw it. He said there's something glorious about God and the nature of his law. W- what is it? It is the character of God on display being communicated to us as finite beings in ways that we can understand. So living according to the law, I mean, Israel would demonstrate the glory of God to the on-looking nations. I mean talk about a life purpose displaying and magnifying the glory of God to an onlooking world. See, loving God meant obeying the law, and it centered on those Ten Commandments. Now, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll remember that those Ten Commandments were kind of directed in two ways. I mean, ultimately, all Godward, but the first four are directly Godward, and the last six are towards your neighbor, how you treat others. So God said, guess what? I'm a God who wants His people to love me and to love others. That's what it looks like. And that's exactly the way that, that Jesus summed up the law in Matthew 22. They asked him, what's the great commandment? What's this law like? And He says, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The law is a book of love. It displays the character of your God. But not only that, I, I think we find something happening in the book of John where John says the law is beginning to be understand of, understood afresh in the light of who Jesus is. This is so important with the way that you read your Bibles. We cannot understand the law or understand the Old Testament if we don't understand who Jesus is as believers. And so in John 13, 34 to 35, John shows us something unique when he says, Jesus gave him these words, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now catch this. Jesus is saying that if you want to please God, then it is very Jesus-centered. You can't please God apart from understanding who Christ is, and understanding his word through the lens of Jesus Christ. I mean, just catch this. Jesus gives him a new commandment by which the nations will know that they follow Jesus. If he is not Lord, that is crazy talk. Think about it. I'm modeling for you how you need to live your life. You're gonna live your life like me, and the whole world's gonna be paying attention. I can't even get attention sometimes in my own house. This is a man who is anticipating the attention of the nations. Of course, he is just stooped to wash their feet. Jesus has in chapter 13, modeling what it looks like to love. It's like an episode of Dirty Jobs. Jesus is doing the dirtiest of jobs of the lowliest of servants to the glory of God. And we know that That is what describes and defines the kind of love that he will show until the greater and lowlier job that he does, which is dying on the cross for sinners. As an act in which we find in John, God's glory would be most fully and clearly seen. His glory was at the cross. But 1 John 3.23, I think, tells us that John also wrote, the way in which we are to understand the law as Christians. And this is what he says. He says, and this is the commandment of Jesus, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, the name under which we understand who God is, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a Christ-centered, God-centered people that follow Jesus Christ. But notice this, not only is it God-centered, he says, and this is the other thing that we do, love one another as he has commanded us. Do you see it? Love of God is believing in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love of neighbor focuses on the loving of one another or other Christians particularly living in a local church together. Yes, we we love neighbors and enemies. But we are called especially to love the body of Christ whom we live in flesh and blood with. Why? Because we have received grace instead of grace. I think this gives us a clue as to why Ephesians 3.10 tells us that the church is the glory of God's wisdom and power on display, not just before an onlooking world. It is that. Jesus told us so in John 13. But in Ephesians 3.10, he says it's not just the onlooking world that is looking. Notice he says that I have done this bringing the church together so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, catch this, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Who are those rulers and authorities in heavenly places? We know according to chapter 6, that's demons. I believe it's angels as well. That's angels and demons boggled by the reality that Christ took on flesh in the cradle and laid down his life on the cross for us. What Christ has done is something so profound that the whole universe is looking on in spellbound wonder. Do we look at Christmas that way? Do we have the sense of awe as we are centrally experiencing the grace of God in this way that the onlooking universe does? I don't know if our minds could handle it. God dwells with man in such a way that it stupefies the whole universe. Don't miss this, we're standing in a unique and privileged place in redemptive history where we have a better word from Jesus in the flesh than Moses who brought down from God those two stone tablets at Sinai. We have God himself. And the church stands as the pillar and buttress of what? Truth. We protect, we protect the truth and we hold it up and display the truth to an on-looking universe about the nature of who God is. What you believe about Jesus matters. Did you know that? Let me say that again. What you believe about Jesus matters. We live in a world where people don't think what you believe matters. The Bible says what you believe, it matters matters. And what your church believes matters. Now, in Trinity Bible Church's statement of faith, we say that we believe in the incarnation. This is how we say it. We believe in the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who took on human nature when the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary, causing her to conceive and give birth to Jesus Christ, who uniquely was both fully God and fully man. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound like the Bible? See, rejecting the Jesus of the Bible is rejecting God's grace. Did did you catch that? Rejecting the Jesus of the Bible is rejecting God's grace. God has spoken to us, the incomprehensible God, that, that we could not know unless in mercy he came down to speak to us and in such a way that we could understand, has spoken. Those are the words that we rest our eternal lives on. So in John ten twenty seven, Jesus says it this way. My sheep hear my voice. Many Christ have come. They are antichrist. I'm the true Christ. Many have come, but my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. See, that following speaks of both what we believe and how we live. The sheep of Jesus, they can tell the difference between the voice of Christ and all of the counterfeits that are out there. They know the difference between the shepherd who feeds the sheep and the wolves who eat the sheep, the Jesus impostors. They know following the true Jesus is difference between eternal life and perishing. You know, we need to be on the, look like, on the lookout constantly for false Jesuses. I don't know if you've ever been to a a Christian bookstore. They're closing down at a pretty rapid rate. I think we can thank Amazon for that. I bought most of my presents on Amazon. Just putting that out there. Real life confession. But some of the top-selling Christian books today have false Jesuses. And that means false teachings about Jesus that don't lead to eternal life but death. So we need to know That accepting the biblical Jesus means rejecting false images of Jesus. So in Velvet Elvis, you'll remember that Rob Bell rejects the virgin birth, which is a belief that the church calls heresy. Now heresy is just a word that means that it's following a belief or a lifestyle that doesn't lead to eternal life in heaven. And he wrote this book way before the cool videos came out. And yet so many evangelical churches were were watching these really cool videos not knowing that this is a man that that believed in a way of life and a doctrine that led to eternal damnation. T.D. Jakes is a oneness Pentecostal who teaches an ancient heresy of Arianism called modalism. That says that God doesn't have three persons but three modes. God the Father became God the Son, became God the Spirit, and those are three modes of God manifestations, but he does not hold that we have a God who has three persons in one essence. That's the historic teaching about who Jesus is. In fact, Athanasius gave his life to writing about this heresy, saying that this is not the heresy that leads to life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present in Matthew 3, witnessing all three together in their persons, also the very one God. Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate Christmas. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? Some of you are like, that'd be good. I don't have to spend all my money on presents, but we need a new heart there, right? But Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't celebrate Christmas because they don't believe in the virgin birth with the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. They believe that God, the Son, entered a man named Jesus in Matthew 3, and if you called adoptionism. Jesus' body was a rental car. It wasn't fully God, fully man from the beginning. Mormons don't believe that Jesus is unique in the eternality of his soul, but that we all are in a sense eternal souls. Do you see it? All of these, all of these false doctrines that lead to death. Don't miss; these are all heresies that reject God's direct word to us in the scriptures. Now, some of you might think, like, why are you just bringing out all these heresies? Like, this is boring. I wanted something to encourage me today. And maybe some of you are just feeling like super overwhelmed. Like it just seems like there's so many ways that we can go wrong here. I'm just, I don't even know if I like I even need to read anything anymore. Maybe I need to just stay inside and wait for Jesus to get back. What do I do to, to protect myself around all of these false teachings? I've got friends that believe all these things. Well, I would encourage you to do what the FBI does. You won't hear that often. But when they're studying for, for counterfeits to be able to detect them, do you know what they do? How they train their people to find a counterfeit? Do they bring every counterfeit example that they've ever had before them so that they can know what a counterfeit looks like? No, they have them spend all of their time and focus and energy on the real deal. Here's what a Benny looks like. Benjamin Franklin, for those of you who are not with it. A $100 bill, for those of you who don't know what one looks like, like me. But you take that $100 bill, and I want you to study it. I want you to become intimately knowledgeable about everything about this real $100 bill. And if you know this, then you're going to know when those false imposters show up. See, if we're like David, and we're loving and delighting in, and being revived daily by the Word of God, then when those false doctrines come up and those heresies come up, there's gonna be a sense in us that something's wrong. Danger Will Robinson. There is a problem here. I I don't even know exactly what it is, but it just doesn't feel right. Why is that? Because we love God's word and we know what God's word says and we have listened to his voice. We are his sheep and we love the voice of Christ and his word and we want to know it. We want to know it so well that we know when we're hearing another voice that's pretending to be his voice but then in the end leads to death and likes to eat us like wolves do. See, the majesty of the incomprehensibility of God, clothed in human flesh, ought to cause us to gaze on the unique glory of God in the scriptures that culminate and climax in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Because, verse 18, Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to God. Look there with me again in, in God's Word. Here's what he says. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now back to the ants on the back of that great elephant. The illustration really does give us a good picture of the desperation of our situation if God himself has not spoken. If he has not spoken, then we just know that everything's broken. We we don't understand why. Why? And we don't know where to look for help. I mean, how can small, finite beings like humans comprehend the infinite, incomprehensible God? God is spirit. He can't be seen. Like, I can't even, if I can't see him empirically, then how can I know him? God didn't have to speak into creation. He didn't have to speak in redemption. He didn't have to do that. He is spirit, cannot be seen. He had the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wasn't lonely. He experienced perfect love before all of creation. He was not bored. When he was bored, he could just create stuff. See, God is spirit, and no one has ever seen his essence. Theophanies. Theophanies have happened in the Old Testament. We see some of those. Moses saw God's glory. Remember in Exodus 33 to 34? But, but even as F.F. Bruce says, even as Moses saw his glory, it was really the afterglow of divine glory. He didn't really behold the fullness of the essence of the glory of God. He speaks with God face to face and yet only sees the form of the Lord in Numbers 12.8. So he's close, but, but he doesn't see him really. And yet in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and he speaks of the glory that he shared with the Father from the foundation of the world. You see that? He didn't just see it. He shared it. He was right there with him in this glory. The fullness of the glory he experienced. He, he marinated it in with it for the Father from the beginning of creation and before. From eternity's past. He knew this glory in a way that no other has known this glory. Intimately. And this may be where John gets the phrase that he uses... To open up 1 John as he's writing to a church to encourage them about salvation. And he says that if you have fellowship with our teachings and with us, we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. That's what true faith means. Fellowship with God. Jesus knows Jesus had fellowship from the beginning with the Father But the eternal Son of God is uniquely qualified to reveal the Father to humans as one who has come from the Father's side. He alone is qualified and able to help us see the invisible God. Unlike Moses, Jesus is the eternal God who took on flesh to show us God. In fact, I love that phrase, at the Father's side. Literally means in the bosom of the Father. The Son came to us from the bosom of the Father. That's closeness That's intimacy. You know, I have a, a friend, I'm not going to name names, who gives really big hugs sometimes. <laughs> and I always love to watch him come, and it's, it's not the normal way that most humans come in for a hug, right? It's like this. Almost like he's trying to get the left hand and the right hand as far apart as possible so that he can swallow you up into his bosom. My favorite part is watching him do that to somebody he doesn't know. (laughs) They feel super uncomfortable. And I love watching that. Why is that? Well, it's because, you know, we're not, some people aren't huggy people, but also this kind of hug, usually we're thinking this is a sign of intimacy. It's like, what does he want from me to give me that kind of affection? From the beginning... The Father and the Son had that perfect intimacy wrapped around one another. Perfect divine relationship. Nothing that is causing them to pull back from one another but always point fuller into one another in love and glory and then to pour out in that love that they have between one another and with the Spirit in such a way that their glory pulls out in love and glory throughout all of the universe declaring His majesty. And that that Son who enjoyed That kind of intimate bosom relationship with the Father has come to tell us what he is like, who knows him like the Son, the eternal Son of God. I love the image that we get in John 13 also where we find that John, the apostle, as Jesus is telling that one will betray him He actually doesn't pull back and say, who is it? He leans into his chest. And he says, who is it that's going to betray you? You almost get the sense that he's crying out, if it's me, help me. And Jesus revealed the father to John. And John was born again and later became a child of God once he gave him his spirit. And the gospel brings us good news about God. That you can know him. That was the news that John got, and that's the news that John wanted to tell others about. I've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and we can know Him. He has spoken, and He has told us how we are to live and what we are to believe. And God's message to us in Christ is that we are sinners in need of God's grace in Christ, who came to a cradle only to go to the cross to rescue us so that we too might enter into that fellowship where we one day will be in the very bosom of God. You know, this is the uniqueness of Christ that separates him from every other prophet. He is the one to whom every other prophet looked for in the Old Testament. God's ultimate self-expression. You know, sometimes when we are looking for other prophets to come after Jesus, it's because we haven't really understand the glories of Jesus. He is both the messenger and the message. He's like, I've got a message. What is it? Me. He's also the climax of God's word to us. That's why we won't follow John Smith's revelations and Mormonism or Muhammad, who says we can't know the attributes of God. Jesus says, I've come to show you the love of God. See, we have Jesus come in the flesh and we await his return in glory. That's our story. Is that yours? If you're not a believer, you can know God in Jesus. He is the only way. There is no other way to God except through the Son. John fourteen six. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and there is no way to the Father except through me. See, he alone came from God in the sense that he came as the God-man, and he was raised from death. Death for your account, for your sins, to take your wrath that you deserve justly. He took that from you so that you might become a child of God by faith. By faith, you see the Christ who gives life. So don't leave if you're here this morning and you haven't put your faith in Christ. Don't leave without talking to me or... One of our other elders, or one of our other members, we would love nothing more than to talk all day about the glories of Jesus Christ. By faith, we see God in Christ. And when we lean into the bosom of Christ, we are leaning into the one who came from the very bosom of God and who returned to that very bosom of God and promises to bring us there as well. Let's pray.